Open your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 47. Today it'll be a little bit different. We're going to go through the passage and then we're going to come back and focus on a particular verse, verse 9. We're talking this morning about living a joyful life. Is it possible? And if it is, how do you do it? We'll uh, introduce with a little review of what's been happening in Jacob's life and Joseph's life. And then we'll look at Jacob's evaluation of the life that he has lived. Joseph's proclamation, at which time the people have run out of food and money. And then Israel's transformation from a family to a nation. The time we have been pressing toward for some days now comes to a culmination today. Now in verse 9, we see Jacob's assessment of his own life at this time. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Now that sounds kind of pessimistic, doesn't it, for someone who trusts in God and who has purpose to follow his ways. Let's take a look back at the things that we have studied. Jacob began by cheating his brother out of his birthright as the oldest son. He robbed his brother of the blessing to have been given him by his father. He had to flee away to a faraway land to avoid the wrath of his brother after he had done that. He had to work for seven years in order to marry his true love. He was swindled on the wedding night by her dad and had to work another seven years. He had to escape secretly with all of his family from the clutches of his father-in-law 20 years later. His dad had changed his wages 10 times during the six years that he had worked in his employment after he had married his daughters. He was distressed by the dishonor of his daughter, his only daughter, and the reckless revenge of her two brothers. He was saddened by the death of his beloved wife in childbirth. He was embarrassed by the disgraceful incest of his oldest son. He was dismayed over the loss of his favorite son for over 20 years. He had to contend with all the troubles brought on to the land by a severe famine. We would have to admit that Jacob was well acquainted with the adversities of life. But here's our question. Did Jacob's life have to be this way? Now, obviously, God knew what it was going to be, but in terms of man's responsibility, here's my premise. The choices that people make in the first half of their lives will profoundly affect the second half. And not only that, but it will affect their evaluation of whether they have lived a happy life. And we want to look at Jacob's evaluation. Joseph's family had arrived in Egypt. He took five of his brothers over to meet Pharaoh. As we read, they discussed the occupation as shepherds, their occupation. And Joseph had wisely located them in Goshen. And that's what they said to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, in answer to the brothers' request, affirmed that Goshen would be the best locality for the family. Then verse 7, Joseph brought in his father 
to meet Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed him. That would be a usual thing for the elder to bless the younger. And probably in the land, the lowland of Egypt, people didn't live to be as old as they did up in the mountains of Canaan. So uh, this guy, Jacob, at age 130, was um, quite a picture of God's blessing in his life, and he blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh responded to the blessing by asking him a question. How many years have you lived? We would ask, how old are you? And Jacob responds with a rather unusual and discouraging reply, and that's going to be the focus of our study today. First, let's complete the background of the lesson. In verse 9, Jacob refers to himself as a sojourner. He is a pilgrim. He is on pilgrimage. Why is that? We see the answer in the New Testament, chapter 11 of Hebrews. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things made it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And then verse 16, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Jacob didn't actually come into possession of any of the land of Canaan. Uh, Abraham didn't. Isaac didn't. He was a nomad in the land. But God has made a promise. And that promise is that the land is coming to his descendants. And we will see many years later that it does. Now, Jacob, Jacob as a pilgrim sojourning in the land is a picture of something in the Christian life. This is very difficult for American Christians to grasp this picture. This world is not our home. We are sojourners here as we pass through the trials and troubles of this home on the way to heaven. Some people think that God is building heaven right here on earth. I can understand how you might think that way living in Texas, but uh, God is not making heaven on earth. He is preparing a home for us that would be unlike anything that we could imagine far above all that we can ask or think. And verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh again and departed from his presence, and the family settled in their new home. And Joseph, notice, continues to repay the unkindness of his brothers with providing food for them and for his father's household as well. We see that in verse 12. Now we come to Joseph's proclamation Back to work for Joseph, there was a continuing challenge with which he had to contend. And that challenge we see in verse 13, now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. We see in verses 13 and 14 that the people had spent all their money for food and now the food was gone and all their money was gone but the famine was still raging on. So Joseph issued a proclamation in verse 16. The people could buy food with their livestock, which they did. 
their livestock was going to die anyway because there was no food for the flocks and the herds. So this looked like a good idea. A further proclamation regarding taxes to be paid for the government is given in verses 23 through 26. Pharaoh, or the government, was to receive one-fifth of everything that was grown in the land. The people, four-fifths. Finally, when their livestock is gone and they don't have anything else, uh, Joseph agrees that they can sell their land and sell themselves into servitude in order to buy food. And they did. And some people would say that Joseph was a socialist who unjustly grasped the possessions of a poor populace of the land. But I would disagree with that. Look in verse 25. The people were very grateful to Joseph for having saved their lives. And he did it without developing a welfare mentality that the government is going to have a kind of a cradle-to-grave program and it's not going to cost you anything. All you have to do is get on board. But the incentive to work would probably be greatly diminished. The people still had the dignity of having paid for what they got. And imagine if we only had a 20% tax burden in this land. Now this was a different culture, and in ancient times, land and other natural resources were viewed more as a public trust to be held in joint ownership. It's a very different kind of thinking than the private property mentality that we have in America. I'm saying that Joseph did what he saw necessary to do at that time, and it seemed to have worked out very well for the people in that day. Then Israel's transformation, we begin to see God's plan unfolding. The Israelites obtained property in the land of Goshen, and now they begin to be fruitful and to multiply in verse 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Goshen, in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. The family is growing into a nation protected by God. And you remember that to have a nation, you've got to have people as well as land and a government. God is protecting the, the land up in Canaan, and they're going to be coming back to the land after some 400 years. But the people have to be protected while they're growing from just a family, a large family, to a small nation. So we read that Jacob lived 17 more years in the land and died at age 147. I wonder if his testimony changed before he died as he was back with Joseph and everything was provided for him. And he made Joseph promise that he would not be buried in the land of Egypt, but that he would be taken home to the promised land and buried in the burial place of his fathers. He had a lot of faith still. Now go back to section B and let's focus on section B. Jacob's evaluation of his own life. He is talking to Pharaoh and he says, The years of my sojourning, or the days of the years of my sojourning, of 130, few and evil have been the years of my life. This verse has been variously translated. Few and evil, difficult, unpleasant, sorrowful, painful, strenuous. 
Why do you think Jacob would have given such a dour answer to that question after having married his true love? You would have think he would have had a little more positive outlook on life. Well, what is it that makes people happy? That's a question that we want to answer today. And I would suggest to you the premise that we've already given Jacob's choices in the first half of his life were going to have a bearing on the second half of his life and on his evaluation of his happiness. What makes most people happy? I would suggest pleasure. If it's bringing me pleasure, I'm going to be happy. If it's bringing me displeasure, I may be unhappy. And happiness sometimes is related to happenstance. If good things are happening, well and good. If some bad things or unpleasant things are happening, I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to be mad, sad, bad, or whatever my response may be. Now let's branch that out a little bit. What needs to bring me pleasure in this life? Different things bring pleasure to different people. But basically, I would like to have the people, the things, and the circumstances in my life all flowing together smoothly in the direction that I would want them to flow, and then I would be happy. Now, if your happiness is based on people, things, and circumstances, that would be a very precarious basis for happiness because we don't have much control over these things, typically speaking. There's usually a strong emphasis here on self. Do you remember some time ago we studied the Beatitudes, the be happy attitudes, we might say. The man would be blessed who recognizes he is poor in spirit. The man would be blessed who mourns over his sin. Well, let's take a look now at the contrast among many people, particularly in our culture, emphasis on self, self-aggrandizement instead of recognizing one's spiritual poverty. Self-reliance instead of realizing my helplessness of a beggar, spiritually speaking. I am poor in spirit. I need Christ to fill my spirit with his spirit and encourage me by that. Self-gratification instead of sorrow over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. Self-assertiveness instead of mild-mannered meekness. You can see the things in the right-hand column are not very appealing in our culture today. Self-indulgence instead of hunger and thirst after righteousness. We don't want to hunger and thirst. We want to be filled. But hopefully it's going to be with righteousness. Self-determination instead of sovereign grace. I'm calling the shots in my life. I'm making my own decisions. That's kind of what Jacob was doing in the early days of his life. Self-confidence instead of complete dependence upon God. And then when something good does happen, self-congratulation instead of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Self-esteem instead of 
God esteem. Now, you're either seeking the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self. And Jesus reminded us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things would be added unto us. Now, what if, through some good fortune, the people and things and circumstances in my life were all flowing the direction that I wanted them to flow? I would be very happy, but probably not for long, because there is a principle of human nature that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes 1.8. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. After you've seen it all, you still want to see some more. And that means that happiness brought about by people, things, and circumstances is subject to the law of diminishing returns. What used to make you happy may not make you so happy anymore. There may need to be some other things that would be added to it. I have shared before that uh, once upon a time in my life, I had a brand new car, a 1966 442 Oldsmobile, a factory order car. I loved that car. I couldn't wait to get behind the wheel of it and be seen driving around the town. And I remember the day that it came in on the truck, unloaded at the Oldsmobile dealership right across the street from Welch Auto Parts, and I was very, very happy. And I got in that car and drove around town, but then I realized if I were going to continue to be happy, there needed to be something besides the vehicle if I were going to really be happy. I needed to have a beautiful girl sitting next to me as I drove around in a vehicle. And I didn't want just any beautiful girl. I wanted a particular beautiful girl, Yvonne Sandifer. And if I could just have Yvonne driving next to me and the people could see that, I would be completely happy. I started wishing that it was a convertible so that people could see better her sitting in that car. Well, that summer, Yvonne <clears throat> moved to my hometown and went to work at our church, and we were to be married in July. And we enjoyed driving around town in the black night. But you know what we discovered? <clears throat> there were going to be a number of other things that we had to have if we were going to be happy to the degree that we wanted to be. We needed to have something to eat and a means of buying some groceries. We needed to have a place to live. We wanted to have some children. There were many, many things that we recognized that we needed. And most of those things fell into the category of people, things, and circumstances. But fortunately, along the way, we had been taught that in reality, giving and serving trumped receiving and being served. And we had had some excellent examples of that in our lives, and that probably saved us from a lot of disappointment with people, things, and circumstances when they're not going your way. We were fortunate to learn a few things from some wise, older people. And one of the things we learned 
with people, you just have to cultivate a servant's heart. A servant may get treated well like a servant. And if he does, if he has a servant's heart, that's no big deal. Even as Christ came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. Then with things, you use things to lay up treasure in heaven. That's what Jesus taught. If God has blessed you with many things, use those things to invest in his kingdom. And then with circumstances, you maintain a single-minded focus on Christ and use your circumstances to promote the gospel. I wish you could have been at Bible study Thursday night. After I concluded the lesson, there was another lesson given on how to use your circumstances to promote the gospel. And it was really a good one. You should have been there. Now, here's some possibilities if you want to be happy. You can hope against hope that everything with people, things, and circumstances are going to be flowing your way. <clears throat> and this would be the person who would buy the lottery ticket. Man, I'm going to win the lottery and it's going to be wonderful because then I'll have the means to get everything I need and I'll live an enjoyable life. Well, usually that person is in for a great disappointment because you can't make everything flow your way no matter how hard you try. And then when you get disappointed, really disappointed, so that you're depressed, you've got to find some way to cope with the disappointment. And then you hear people saying something, like, why didn't somebody who loves me tell me that a life of sin was not going to make me happy in the long run? We hear stories about that all the time. You see, some people may be delivered from the guilt of sin through faith in the blood of Christ but they're not delivered from the power of sin through the process of sanctification and so they just stumble along through life stumbling on Christ's commandments and never attaining real joy or happiness because there are always some things wrong because things didn't work out the way they wanted to the world as many remedies for that kind of discouragement that can come in life. The frustration, the loneliness, the hopelessness. But not many of those remedies are going to be satisfying. And some of them are going to result in broken health and broken dreams and utter despair. If you've ever known anyone who has run through all the world's options with regard to dealing with their discouragement. Now that is the devil's delight because he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he would really like to take your happiness for all times to come or to keep you from experiencing the joy that only Christ can give. Not only that, he's going to lie to you about it. He's the father of lies. He's been lying since the beginning. And he's going to tell you, oh, this is going to be fun. And he's telling the truth for a while. It looks pretty good when you're the prodigal son taking off in your new Corvette. But from the pigsty, it doesn't look so good anymore. But of course, the enemy doesn't tell you about that part. That's the first option. 
you can just hope that good fortune comes your way. Option number two, you can pour yourself into the objective of seeking to manipulate people, things, and circumstances so that they will suit you and you will be happy. This proves to be a formidable task, not only because the world is under a curse of sin, but guess what? There are many other people who are seeking to do the same thing, and they may be trying to manipulate you so that you can make them happy. Please don't marry that type of person. That could be a very difficult time. Now, this option is precisely what happened in Jacob's life. As a young man, he set out to manipulate his brother and steal his birthright. And he did, you remember, with the pottage that he cooked. Then he outmaneuvered his aging, almost blind father to steal the blessing from his brother. And he got away with it, he thought, but he wasn't too happy because he had to make a run for it to avoid the wrath of his brother. And then he met sweet Rachel. She was a lovely girl. But her dad was a big-time schemer, and Jacob was small potatoes when it compared to Laban as someone who could scheme things to suit him. So we read Laban changed his wages ten times, swapped his daughter on the wedding night. Joseph, Jacob had to work another seven years for him. A few days of labor, it might seem like romantic bliss, but remember, in Laban's employment, Jacob was almost like a slave. And he came from a family where he had a wealthy grandfather and a wealthy father. Add to that mix Zilpah, Bilhah, and you have a recipe for unhappiness. There were all kinds of manipulation and jealousy and bartered mandrakes and everything else that comes in marriage when people try to manipulate each other. Life is all about choices. Look at the choices that Jacob made. Jacob and his mom could have waited, if they could exercise a little patience, for God to fulfill the prophecy that the older would serve the younger. Isaac and Rebekah wanted godly lives for their sons. They could have sent a servant back to Haran to find a believing wife, even as Isaac's father did for him. Now, Leah was the oldest daughter in Laban's family. She had to be married first, and she would logically have married Esau. And she was most, the most prolific by far, having six sons and a daughter. And if Esau had married her, maybe those boys could have grown up going hunting and fishing with him. That's what he did a lot of the time. And they might have been able to avoid some of the trouble that they got into. But choices. Now that would have left the younger daughter, Rachel, to marry the younger son, Jacob, and he could avoided, have avoided 20 years of his life and the curse that we saw that Laban put on the ones who had stole his household gods, which turned out to be poor Rachel. Choices, choices. Young people, can you see it? The choices that you make in the first half of your life are going to have a profound bearing on what happens in the second half of your life. And the way you see your life as to whether you would really be happy or not. 
Now, certainly you can recover from wrong choices, and we all do. But the question is not, am I having fun right now? The question is, am I investing in anything that's going to bring satisfaction and fulfillment later on? That would be people and the Word of God, especially the Gospel, loving people, serving people, uh, doing the things that God has shown us to do in Scripture, and doing those things with a good attitude. You can do that in all kinds of professions, jobs, and ministries. We're not suggesting that you have to go into full-time Christian ministry, but you have to learn to give, because you're more blessed when you give than if you receive. And if you don't have a lot to give, you can give yourself. That's what Christ wants. Well, these were tough lessons that Jacob had to learn, but we can profit from his error because we can just read it in the book about the choices that he made. Al Mohler describes our culture at the recent Ligonier Conference in Orlando. You see, it's going to be difficult to make right choices today because our culture is telling us, follow your heart and do what feels good. But here's what Dr. Moeller related. A cultural shift is when the thinking of our culture begins to change, and so we have to kind of revise the moral code because different things are becoming acceptable. That would be a moral shift in the culture, such as we saw in the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s. But he says now we're experiencing something very rare in any culture, and that would be a moral reversal. A moral reversal. And a moral reversal would be when what is celebrated in a culture is condemned, what used to be condemned, and what is condemned now would be those who refuse to celebrate. Do you see what we're talking about? Things like abortion, same-sex marriage, just living together without being married. Young people, what are you going to do when your friends are participating and even celebrating these kinds of things that are an abomination to God? What are you going to do? You're going to compromise because you don't want to be thought of to be weird, judgmental, or legalistic. So you just accommodate the culture. But I can assure you of this, if you're a true Christian, you'll never be happy compromising, accommodating the culture. It's just not going to work that way because if you have heard the truth and if you're a true Christian, then you've had the light. And if you turn from the light, then you're not going to be happy with yourself. You'll bear a burden of guilt. I heard it from Paul Renfro. He said, uh, someone has noticed that the problem in culture is no longer the problem. The problem would be those who point out the problem. And if you are confronting your culture, you are the problem. Because the culture wants you to join in and celebrate these sins that have even been legislated into law in our country. We really are facing challenging times 
in our land today. Just compromise. Be compatible with the culture. That's what you, they want you to do, and that way you won't make any waves that you'll never be happy. You'll be just like Jacob. Few and wretched have been the years of my life. Now, when you're 130 years old, there's not much time left to do much about it. Unfortunately, sometimes this manipulation spills over into marriage. What a sad situation that turns out to be. Sometimes divorce is around the corner. Perhaps there's someone else who would make me happy on down the line or someone whom I can better manipulate. There are the first two options of our three choices. Hope against hope for good fortune in life. Work hard to manipulate everything and everybody to suit yourself. Good luck on that one. But then you can discover life as it was intended to be lived. Invest in people, the Word of God, giving and serving with a good attitude. We have the perfect example. He was the source of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. He made us. So he knows what's going to really make us happy and fulfilled and satisfied. And he tells us in Scripture, blessed are the poor in spirit. And a number of other things. Now, in order to really have a joyful life, you've got to have your destination nailed down for the future. You've got to know where you're going, as we were talking about in the first light hour. There are only two destinations. If you don't go to the one, you will go to the other. And if you don't do something about going to the one, by default, you will go to the other. But once I get that in eternal destiny nailed down, then I can go to work on serving others, the Word of God, giving, serving, all those things. That's precisely what Joseph did. He lived a life of service. Now, you might say, well, he was forced to. He was a slave. Yeah, but he could have been a slave with a bad attitude. But I think as I read about Joseph, he must have had a really joyful spirit because he kept rising up with every new adversity that came to his life. And he was dependable. He was encouraging to others. He always did his responsibility in a trustworthy manner. He was the kind of guy, I think, then had a joyful life. People, things, and circumstances didn't deter him, and he had his share of those people who were against him. He knew God was in control of his life. He trusted that God has a plan and that he knows what's best. Can you trust him that he does know what's best for you? And he's going to get you where you need to be. Now, before we go, let me ask you a diagnostic question. The answer to which, I believe, will give a good indication as to whether or not you're going to have a happy life, a joyful life, in a biblical sense. This doesn't tell everything, but I like this question. It is, do you have a song in your heart this morning? Do you have a song of joy and gladness in your heart? If you don't have a song, it might be that you have forgotten what there is to sing about. It might be that the Spirit is not present there. 
Years ago when I was teaching high school Bible students just before the Christmas holidays, I would give the Christmas exam, just a time to have some fun, but to see if what you believed about Christmas came from tradition or the culture or maybe the Bible or maybe the pictures on the Christmas cards. And there would be questions like, how many wise men were there that came to see the baby Jesus? And the answers would always be multiple choice, one, three, five, seven, unknown. And they would always pick three. But the scripture says there were three gifts. The right answer would be unknown. We don't know how many wise men there were. Maybe there were ten wise men who all got together, pooled their resources, and bought some gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So you can see where students would really get bent out of shape on this test. But the one question they hated, because they always got it wrong, was the question about the angels. The angels, here's the question. Where in the Bible do the angels sing? At the dedication of Solomon's temple? At Jesus' birth in Bethlehem? At Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday morning? In the book of Revelation? Or nowhere? And the correct answer is nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible do the angels sing. Now that kind of disturbed me when I first ran into that because we sang in a hymn this morning about the angels singing. Tell me the story of Jesus. Well, the same thing bothered the pastor, the former pastor of First Baptist in Dallas, W.A. Criswell. You've heard of him. When he ran into that information, he wrote some things down in a sermon. And I'd like to read to you what he wrote in closing because it relates to this song in your heart. He says, another thing that was astonishing to me is that angels never sing. Never. When I stumbled into that fact, it was an amazing discovery. I'd already made up my mind before I say these things that I'm going to keep referring to angels singing even though it's not true. To do so is traditional. After all, did they not sing when Jesus was born? Always people have spoken about angels singing when Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, you know the angels song. So I turned to Luke 2.13 and read, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts saying, glory to God in the highest. And so it was in the book of Revelation 2. And there was a great host of angels saying with a loud voice, never in the Bible do angels sing. Never. They always say. They are in a doxology, in a course. They are in a recitative. They are all together saying, but never do they sing. This was an astonishing discovery to me, says Dr. Crystal. So I began reading, studying, probing, trying to find out why the angels do not sing, and this is the best reason I can find. Always the redeemed sing. God's blood-washed sing. God's children sing, but angels do not sing. Here's my conclusion. Music is made up of major and minor chords. The minor chords speak of wretchedness, death, and sorrow of this fallen creation. Most of nature moans and groans in a plaintive minor key. The sound of the wind through the forest, the sound of the storm, the sound of the wind blowing around your house is always in a minor key. It wails. Even the nightingale's song, the sweetest song of the birds, is the saddest. All of this reflects the wretchedness, the despair, the hurt, the agony, the travail of the fallen creation. But an angel knows nothing of this. 
The major key and major chords are chords of triumph and victory. Surely God has taken us out of the miry clay. He's taken us out of the horrible pit. He has set our feet on the solid rock and put a new song in our souls and praises on our lips. The angels know nothing of this. An angel has never been redeemed. An angel has never been saved. They see it. They watch it. But they know nothing of it experientially. It takes a saved soul to sing. So I would ask you this morning, are you a saved soul? If you are, God puts a song in your heart and you can choose to be joyful if you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Abraham Lincoln once said that most people are about as happy as they choose to be. And I think that's probably right. But if you have the blood of Christ applied to your sin and you are saved, you can choose to be joyful. Or you can end up like Jacob with that gloomy testimony. Life is so undifficult, so unpleasant, so sorrowful, painful, strenuous, so short and filled with trouble. If you've been saved from the penalty of sin, maybe it's time to be saved from the power of sin and from the power of negative thought patterns that the enemy likes to feed to us. So which would you choose this morning, melody or malady? Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts toward God. You can't sing about gratitude if it's not in there. So I would encourage you now as we pray to ask God to put a new song in your heart if you know him. You might have to move some other things over out of the way in your heart. If you don't know Christ, come to him asking forgiveness for your sin. Invite him to come into your life to transform your life to give you the attitude of one like Joseph that you might be able to serve, that you might be able to give. And let me remind you that no matter what the choices you have made in the past, God waits with forgiveness and a fresh start. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have made it possible for us to face whatever circumstances there may be in this world. The wrath of whatever people may come across our path and anything else because we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Lord, we recognize that we can only do any good through the power of your spirit working through us. But we would ask this morning that we might be able to put off the despair or the hopelessness or the gloominess of life and whatever thoughts we are bearing as a burden right now and that we might remember that you have provided a way of salvation and that you have stored up for us an inheritance And we do have a future and a hope no matter what happens here on this earth. Lord, help us in these challenging days when 
our culture is no longer just uh, doing things that are against the Bible. The culture wants all of us to join in with them in celebrating those things. Lord, we need courage. We need your strength in these perilous times in which we live. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we might see revival. We continue to pray for revival. As we come to this time of Lord's Supper, we ask that you would help us to examine our hearts to see if there is a song there, a song of gratitude for what you have done for us. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here today who does not truly know you, perhaps someone who has been to church and done all the religious things and maybe has even taken the Lord's Supper or been baptized, and yet in their heart of hearts they would know that they really are not living for you, that the world is calling and that call is very strong. I would pray that today your spirit would touch their hearts, you would bring them to yourself, and I pray as we participate together in this Lord's Supper that we might have a song of gratitude, Lord Jesus, for what you've done coming to this earth, dying for our sin, ascending into heaven after the resurrection to validate all that you have done. I would pray, Lord, for your spirit to cut through the things of the world, the thoughts that the enemy would squeeze into our minds and help us to see the essence of life, that it's the essence of salvation, that it's Christ. And Lord, we love you. We want to serve you. We want to honor you with the life that we live. We need your strength to do that. And we pray all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.